In the book of Mark this morning, if you will open your Bible with me there, we continue. The Gospel of Mark and the shortest gospel, the gospel of action, the gospel first written of the four gospels. And we look in chapter number one. Here we have an account early in the gospel of Mark of Jesus going to his hometown. That's where he had gone to live after he left Nazareth and his, his, fa- or his mother and stepfather's home. And so he goes to the synagogue, and he encounters a man there who is possessed of a demon, and Jesus casts the demon out. In verse 24, you will notice that the demon immediately recognizes Jesus and is extremely hostile and belligerent toward him. Verse 24, let us alone, what have we to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? You can feel the hostility there, can't you? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, he was right on that. He knew who Jesus was. Now, Jesus rebuked him and said, hold your peace. Jesus never wanted to to have his ministry confirmed by a demon. He didn't need a testimony from that source, of course. And so every time a demon speaks about Jesus, Jesus says, hold your peace, be quiet, shut up, if you will. And so Jesus hushed him. Now go to, down to verse 32. And the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of divers, various diseases. And he cast out many devils. And he allowed not the devils to speak because they knew him. So he meets with devils again. And in chapter 3, turn over there with me, if you will, a couple pages. Verse 11, and unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, again, the demons testify, they testify the truth. Thou art the Son of God. But he charged them that they should not make him known. And so you get the pattern. Everywhere Jesus goes, he encounters demons. He's always encountering demons. If you go to chapter 5, and I'm not going to turn there, nor do you need to, but there's another account of Jesus meeting with demons. If you go over to chapter 6, the very next chapter again, Jesus encounters demons in his ministry. If you go to chapter 9, he encounters demons in his ministry. Everywhere he goes, over and over, he's encountering these demons, these unclean spirits. So I read this a few all two or three weeks ago, my Bible reading, if you're reading the same schedule I am, the two-year plan, then you just read the Gospel of Mark. And it suddenly dawned on me as I sat there with pen in hand, reading God's Word early in the morning about these demons. Well, Jesus encountered demons over and over everywhere he went. Where have all the demons gone? Where are the demons now? Because we don't encounter demons or it doesn't seem like we do every time we come to church or in our our day-by-day normal activities. So I thought I'll preach a message on where have all the demons gone? And I started doing a lot of research and study on it. We put it up on our website this past week. And the question 
where have all the demons gone? Immediately, somebody turned to the website. A gentleman read the website, read the question, where have all the demons gone? He emailed me back, and he said, to Washington, preacher, I think. <laughs> and I thought, there's a wise man in this congregation. I'll tell you what, some of them have an R after their name, and some of them have a D after their name, but I know where the demons are in America today. Partially, that's partially true. But are there any demons in Florence? Do we ever encounter any demons? Why don't we see demonic activity just like Jesus saw demonic activity? Why don't we see it in our day like we saw it in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ? Interesting question, huh? Well, I think maybe we ought to back up a little bit and discover what the Bible says about this other world, this world of demonic spirits. And I'm going to go through references, and I'm not going to, I'm going to go through them so fast, you're not going to need to be able to look them up in your Bible. But you might want to just, in the margin of your uh, program there somewhere, you could write down these references if you want to look them up. Just, that's all you'll have time for, and some of them will be on the screen. What is a demon? That's my first question. What is a demon? When I talk about demons, when the Bible speaks of demons, what is a demon? Well, the, we, we back up further because the Bible defines angels in, in the Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14. Hebrews 1 and 14 says, an angel is a ministering spirit. So a spirit. An angel doesn't have a corporal body like you and I have with flesh and bone. An angel is a spirit being. And so the, they were made by God to minister to him. He created angels to minister to him and to minister to us. We see them sent in the Bible on various missions. But they're spirit beings. Unless they take on an appearance where you could see them with a physical eye, they can be present, and uh, you would never see them because they're spirit beings. That's hard for us to conceptualize, but true nonetheless. An angel is a ministering spirit. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 9, it says that when Satan rebelled against God, that he was cast to the earth, and one-third of the angels were cast out with him. One-third of the ministering spirits followed Satan in his rebellion against God. And when he was cast out of heaven, these angels that followed him were also cast out of heaven. And then we go to Luke chapter 10 and verse number 20. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself said, rejoice. He was talking to his apostles. He said, rejoice not that the spirits, angels, are subject unto you, so what is a demon? A demon is one of those one-third of the angelic force who rebelled against Almighty God and rejected his authority, who sought to overthrow God himself in that rebellion with Satan and has been cast out of heaven into the pit the Bible refers to it, which I don't have time to explain all of that, obviously. But what is a demon? 
A demon is a former angel. A demon is a fallen angel who has come to the earth and seeks to carry out the will of Satan himself. Now, I do want you to turn to this passage. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 6 with me because this is, this is a familiar but one of, to me one of the most fascinating passages in all of Scripture. And if you're studying this subject, we're going to have to find out what it teaches here. And in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the curtain of this invisible spirit world is lifted and we just get a little glimpse under the curtain, just a little tiny moments uh, glimpse here. But in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 10, finally, my brethren, Paul the apostle writes, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or we would say in our day, the strategies of the devil. The devil has a strategy, he has a plan. Put on God's armor that you may be able to stand against his strategies. Now, note verse 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood or human beings, but we wrestle against principalities. Okay, if you'll look up the word principalities in the dictionary, a principality is a territory on the earth, a country, a nation, a county, whatever it may be, that's ruled over by a prince. That's hence the name principality, a prince or a princess. So there are places here ruled over a, a prince, but the prince is the prince of darkness. It's Satan and his demons who followed him, the fallen evil spirits, if you will. We wrestle not against human beings, physical things, but against principalities, people who rule over a certain territory, if you will, spiritually, against powers. There's another level of demon spirits. Against another level, the rulers of the darkness of this world. And another level against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so here we see Satan as the head of a spiritual kingdom. Satan is the head of an evil empire, if you will. An empire of wickedness and rebellion against Almighty God. An empire where God is hated by these, these beings, if you will. And they're called, the, the, the territories are, are principalities. And the, the, the various levels of demons powers, rulers of darkness, a hierarchy, if you will, spiritual wicked people who control events or influence events under their dominion. Now, I'm not going to turn here again, but in Daniel chapter 10, one of the absolutely most fascinating passages in all of the Bible tells the story of Daniel, who is the prime minister of the ancient empire of Babylon, he is down on his knees praying, and he prays and fasts for three weeks, for 21 days. As he prays and fasts, his prayer can't get through. He's praying and praying, and nothing happens. And then an angel comes and speaks to him, and the angel says, listen, I heard your prayer three weeks ago, but your prayers have been held up by this 
evil demon who he calls the prince of Persia. In other words, this demon is over the principality. He's a prince. He's over the principality of Persia, meaning that there appears to be demon spirits assigned by Satan to certain territories upon the earth where he seeks to influence the events that occur in those territories or countries or counties or, or kingdoms or whatever they may be. Fascinating. How much do demons know? How much power do they really have? Well, I'll tell you real quickly, they're not omniscient. They don't know everything. They're not God. And they don't have all power. Only Jesus Christ could say, I have all power. He's the only one who could say, I have that. However, let me give you the definition of a demon right now then, a formal definition that I've kind of worked through and, 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 I would, and, and I want you to understand clearly. Forget the movies you've seen. Forget all the books and all the stuff where you've been exposed in a secular sense. What does the Bible say a demon is? If you take what I've just taught in the last seven or eight, ten minutes, a demon is a fallen angel who followed Satan when he fell and is in rebellion against God. A demon is an unclean, evil, malevolent, stacking up words to try to make you get the point. A demon is a wicked spirit, a spirit being who serves Satan and opposes Jesus Christ and his cause. A wicked, malevolent, evil, unclean spirit being. Now, if you don't believe in the world of spirit beings, of course, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit either, I would assume. But I believe that most people here, if you believe the Bible, you know there is an unseen world. I've preached on that twice recently. On the day I used the big box, outside the box thinking that we as Christians have because we think outside the material world, the secular world, the world of physical and tangible things. We believe there's that other dimension, the world of heaven, the world of the Spirit of God, the world of Christianity and conversion. And so a demon is a fallen angel, one who followed Satan in that rebellion, an unclean spirit, an evil spirit being who serves Satan and opposes the cause of Jesus Christ in every form. What are the characteristics of demon activity? Jesus here, if we go back to Mark chapter 1, went into the synagogue in his hometown of Capernaum. It's interesting. I thought you met demons in strange, weird places. He met one in the church. <laughs> well, after I pastored a few years, I figured sometimes the devil does come to church. I won't get real specific, but uh, let it lay there. But no, demons can be right at the door of the synagogue, can't they? And they were here. They can come in all kinds of ways. In fact, they might be in respectable company more than the places you might think they inhabit. There are three levels of demonic control I find in the Bible. And these I want you to remember. Demons and Satans, first of all, seek to influence our thinking. They suggest evil thoughts to us. We don't have to act on those, 
But I really believe that sometimes you're driving down the street in your car or you're at work or you're at home. You're engaged in the normal activities of life and suddenly there's a very evil suggestion that comes. Where did it come from? It's totally against your value system, totally against what you believe, what you've been, you haven't been thinking about this kind of thing and suddenly it's there. Where's it come from? I think that could be demonic influence. And then there's demonic obsession or oppression. You can say it either way. Where a thought gets in your head and you can't get it out. And it weighs heavily on your mind. A person came to see me some years ago now. The person said, Pastor, I have a horrible problem. It's it's eating me up to the point that I don't even know if I'm saved or not sometimes. I sit and I think, why would a saved person be thinking like I'm thinking? I said, tell me about it. What are you thinking? And this person said, I have these horrible thoughts. They dropped their head, wouldn't look, make eye contact. Shame was all over their face. Pastor, I think these things about God, they're vile. I don't even want to tell you, Pastor, what I think. I said, you don't need to. I don't need to. You've you've told me enough. I understand. I think these thoughts about God, vile thoughts with profanity and filthy language. Why would a Christian think like that? And I said, because there is a world that you obviously don't understand. You didn't sit down and intend to think like that, did you? No. Have you been reading filthy literature? No. Do you watch pornography? No. Well, where'd that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from old Slewfoot. It came from the devil or one of his emissaries. And he puts that thought. See, this is the spirit world. This is the world of the mind, the spirit. This is not the world of physical things. Second level, obsession. So the devil influences us on three levels. Influences us. Obsession, where something weighs on our mind, we're obsessed with it. Can't get it out of our mind. It's like that tune you can't get out of your mind. Only this is evil that you can't get out of your mind, that you don't want there. And yet it sticks. And there's a third level we call demon possession. Now, a Christian can be influenced or even under oppression But a Christian cannot be possessed. Let me say that to you. You're not demon-possessed if you're a Christian because your body is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Now, Satan can come and seek to influence me. He cannot indwell me. And the reason is because possession means total control of a person, of their mind, their body, their spirit, even their physical being, of course. We see that even in this passage right here, where the demon came out and tore the man. There was some physical um, effect upon the man. What factors, what behaviors do we see in the Bible, in the New Testament? And I'm not going to Hollywood for these things. It would make it more sensational, but I want to stick strictly with my Bible. What activities do demons do? What, What activities, what behavior would indicate demonic activity in the life of a person. 
And I'll go very quickly because I have 12 of them and you, you just, you'll just have to get the notes later or something if you want the, the detailed listing. But look in Mark chapter 1 and verse number 24. Mark 1 and 24, the demon says, leave us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. Leave us alone. Now, you see something like that almost every time Jesus encounters these evil spirits. And so the first characteristic behavior of demonic activity is a hatred of and a fear of Jesus Christ. Satan hates Jesus Christ. He hates the very mention of his name. And he fears Jesus Christ because he knows ultimately he's going to encounter Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is going to assign him and all those demons to hell forever. And so there is this powerful, powerful hostility toward our our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Samuel 18 and 10, King Saul is in a rage And he throws a javelin trying to kill David, who has been brought in to play soothing music to calm him down. And then we read another verse in 1 Samuel 18, and it says that behind Saul's rage and anger is an evil spirit that has come to him. Number three, in Acts 16, 16, there's a young slave girl And her masters are using her because she has psychic ability, psychic ability. Now, I don't believe that psychics know the future, except where that there might be some demonic influence that would give them some hint about some things. Even Satan doesn't know the future except in certain ways. But this girl is being manipulated and used by her owners And then we find out that she gets her psychic ability from a demon. And then in Matthew 17, 15, there's a father who comes to the disciples and said, please cast this demon, he already knew the problem, out of my son. He casts himself into the fire, and he throws himself into bodies of water trying to drown himself. And so self-destructive activity Sometimes, I don't believe that everybody who commits suicide is demon-possessed. Don't go beyond what I'm saying. But I believe in some cases, it is a part of a self-destructive urge that people feel. And I think that some seizures, as this little boy was having, and not all seizures either. Some are physically caused. We have people in this congregation who have epilepsy And we understand that's a physical abnormality in your brain. But on the other hand, we also understand that Satan can work and create convulsive type activity. In the Bible, we see it in Matthew 17. In Mark 5, we see a man who we know as the maniac of Gadara. And this man has supernatural strength. They come and they bind him with all these different things, chains and cords and ropes and so on. And every time he breaks them, And he doesn't break them because he's got muscle mass. He breaks them because he has supernatural strength that's given to him in this way. In the book of Luke chapter 8 and 27, it describes the same man, and he's naked. And I wonder sometimes if some of the 
things we see happening in our day, particularly sexual abuse, a desire to expose oneself sexually is not related to some sort of demonic influences in people's lives. And then in Mark 5, we see that that same man lived in a graveyard. Why would a man have a fascination with the dead? Necromancy, they call it. It's the official name for it. But it is a behavior that's associated in a number of times in the Scripture with uh, demonic activity, attraction, and and an obsessive attraction with the dead. I don't want to get on a tear, but some of the movies that are on television and so on, and people get involved in this obsessive attraction with death. And I want to tell you, it's unhealthy. You might be opening yourself to something more than you are interested in. And then I want you to turn to this one because I think this is the big one. Today in our world, where have all the demons gone? Well, you might look for them around the synagogue as we saw in Jesus' day. Would you turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Now, this is the area that a lot of people who are not instructed in Scripture, they, they completely miss. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So I'm asking you to turn with me as we read here in verse number 13. He's talking about false teachers, false apostles. And he writes, 2 Corinthians 11 and 13, such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves, appearing as the apostles of Christ, and no marvel. Now look at this. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. What does that mean? That's white magic, as they call it. Satan has transformed himself to appear as a religious leader, a teacher, a preacher, some sort of religious figure. Because after all, who's going to influence the most people? The drunk who is under the control of Satan and has destroyed his life and is stumbling down the street somewhere, homeless in the Bowery? Or who would influence the most people? A preacher standing in a pulpit, holding a Bible, wearing a blue suit, and preaching the truth in a measure, and then distorting that truth and leading people to the destruction of their souls. Who's going to have the most influence? Where do you think Satan would rather be? Which picture do you think in his mind would be more effective? And so false doctrine, religious deception, Satan transformed into an angel of light, and people following in hordes. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it warns about mediums and sorcerers and all kinds of other occultic people or categories are mentioned there. Characteristic behavior of people who are influenced by demons. And then I want you to turn to one more, and it's in the book of Revelation, and this one has always held such fascination to me. Just turn to the last chapter of your Bible, 
and then go back one, Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. And it's talking about the people who will be in hell. Revelation 21 and 8, the people who will be in hell. The fearful, and that fear there is a fear of identifying yourself with the Lord that you're not going to openly come out as a Christian. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, which we call hell. Now, there's one word in there I want you to underline, circle in your Bible if you haven't already done so. You may have when I preach through Revelation. It's the word sorcerer. Sorcerer. Do you know what a sorcerer is? A sorcerer is a person who has demonic influences in his or her life and have given themselves over to it. But the interesting thing about that word, it fascinates me in our culture. The Greek word there is P-H-A-R-M-A-K-I-A, pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy, from which we get our word drugs. My friend, when you involve yourself with drugs, you're opening yourself to powers that you can't control. It's so sad. Our country's eat up with it, eaten up with it. They tell me today that there's more of a problem with legal drugs than there is with street drugs. Wednesday night, I have a little group of men I've been working with trying to help them, disciple them. After we got through, they're all younger men than me. They always want to go out and eat or something, drink a cup of coffee. So we went to a restaurant in town. We sat down there, and I ordered a Coke, and they chowed down on about 900 calories each. But while we sat there, a guy came in the door and said, Hey, preacher. And I looked over and I recognized a man who comes to church here sometimes and we've tried to help. He came over the table. His eyes didn't look like normal. And he sat down at the table beside us. And you know what happened? He immediately, he just fell into a stupor. He was so out of it that I honestly wanted to go over and help him. I was afraid he was going to fall out in the floor and hurt himself. I went home and I told my wife. I said, it breaks my heart. Breaks my heart. And he's not one of a minority. It's a large minority. I hope it's not a majority but one of a big crowd of people is Satan has got a foothold in. And through drugs, he destroys their life. Let me tell you, when you play with drugs illegally, you're playing with something. You don't know where that's going to go. Listen to me. Sorcerers, 
drug dealers, illegal drug users, the hooked, pharmakia. It says it three or four times there in Revelation, pharmakia. Now, I've given you 12 different behaviors that could be associated, not in every case, but very well could be associated with demonic idea activity. So now, here's the question of the day. I started out, I haven't answered it. Where have all the demons gone? We've gone through a thorough study, though. What is a demon and the characteristics of demonic activity? Where have all the demons gone? Okay, let's just do a little run through history right quick, and then we'll be finished. Where have all the demons gone? Well, obviously, during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was widespread demonic activity during his ministry. He met them in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9 of Mark. He met them ongoing. Uh, I didn't even go any further than chapter 9, but there's account after account. Then the apostles in the book of Acts, where we see the early history of Christianity, they're always encountering demons in their They're uh, casting them out of people. Because Jesus gave his apostles the power to cast out demons. You can look at Mark 6, 7 if you want to see that. I'm not going to turn there. But Jesus gave his apostles. Now listen to me. He gave his apostles the authority and the power to cast out demons. Did he give Bill Monroe the power and the authority to cast out demons? My answer, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't claim that as a gift. And, uh, but Jesus gave it to his apostles during that period of time. After Christ, you know, when he ascended back to heaven, the apostles fanned out, went across the Roman Empire, and Christianity spread like a wildfire across the ancient world. It was incredible. Within a few years of the, the, the uh, uh, ascension of the Lord, we believe that 50% of the people in the city of Jerusalem were Christians who had been converted to Christ. And of course, churches were established in Antioch and Ephesus and Colossae and, and across the Roman Empire until 300 years later, we know that it was declared a Christian nation. Now, we might question that, but at any rate, uh, it, there was a lot of Christians there. But then the persecution started. Follow me, follow the timeline. Persecution started. And the Christians went underground. They hid away. And Christian influences were fought down under those persecutions, if you will. And about 500, the world entered into what we now call the Dark Ages, the medieval times, if you will. The world was in darkness. And that period of time was characterized by ignorance, by superstition, by intellectual and spiritual darkness like you can't believe. Because we know looking back that the churches had for the most part become very corrupt, false doctrine, apostasy, ignorance, superstition reigned. The church was selling indulgences for people to pay some money, and you could go and have permission even to sin, and things were all out of whack, and guess what? Demon activity was growing again. During the time of the apostles, it seems to have been pushed back slightly at least, 
But then when the persecution started and Christian influences waned and were no longer strong, then the demons came back. And we look at the dark ages, if you think about it, as a time of increasing demonic activity, the dark arts, the idea of the witches and all the stuff that went on during the Middle Ages, the dark ages, we call them. And the world went on like that for hundreds of years. People living in fear and ignorance and superstition of Satan. By the way, it would interest you to know that in, for example, China today, an officially atheistic nation where people do not believe in the Bible and Jesus Christ in any great numbers, and yet they believe in demons. And one of the characteristics when you go to China is how deeply people who drive Mercedes believe in demons. They go out to cemeteries, and you'll, you'll see evidence of what they're, they're putting pieces of paper and charms on graves to keep the spirits away. They believe in demons, but they don't believe in Jesus Christ because of ignorance and superstition. And in the 1400s, the world began to change primarily, probably the greatest discovery in history. Johann Gutenberg discovered, invented the printing press. And the Bible began to be printed again because the Bibles had been very few in number, hand copied and chained to the pulpits for a thousand years. Now the Bible became available And when people begin to read the Bible, light comes in and darkness goes out. And that happened because of Johann Gutenberg. Education began to be valued again where people hadn't been educated in hundreds of years. And then in 1517, Martin Luther nailed that 95 thesis up to the door of Wittenberg Castle and declared again the great truths of God's grace, that salvation is not by works, and salvation is not by the church, but salvation is by the blood of Jesus Christ. By grace through faith, people are saved, not through their own self-effort. And so Luther put that there. And guess what? Spiritual freedom began to come. By the way, spiritual freedom begets political freedom. And the old ways of the medieval manor and the serfs, which were nothing but slaves, people began to get their freedom, and it went across Europe and ultimately came to America where there was a new country being founded. And as the light of the gospel was growing, demonic activity was pushed back. And from about mid-1500s until 1920, Demon activity was restrained because Western civilization accepted the Bible and Jesus Christ. And our Western world was called Christian civilization. Now, today, the political correct people don't like that. But but Europe and America was known as Christian civilization. It was built upon the Judeo-Christian values and ethics of the Old and the New Testaments. And Christianity flourished. And churches were built. And the gospel was preached. And Bibles were printed. 
And hundreds of thousands and millions of people were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and Satan's influence was pushed back. It was the missionary era, the 1700s. The missionaries would come back from China and Africa and Asia and Latin America, and they would tell us, we encountered demons, but we didn't see them so much in America and in Western Europe where the gospel was being preached and the churches were flourishing. Where have all the demons gone? As long as the gospel, as long as the light shines, darkness is repelled. And demons, as you saw in Mark 1, flee the presence of Jesus Christ like darkness flees the light. Let me tell you a quick story. A few years ago, a man, oh, it's been 15, 20 years ago, a man called me and said, I want to take you quail hunting. And I said, okay. So I got out my old shotgun I'd had since I was a boy. Still have it loaded <laughs> at my house. And at any rate, seriously, I took my old shotgun and we went out. We marched across this field. And I was here and he was there. Somebody else over here. He had some beautiful bird dogs. He said, There's, this field is full of quail, Bill. I said, I don't see any quail. I tell you, they're here. I've been feeding them. I've been checking it out. I've thrown corn down. Demons, uh, quail everywhere. About to blow my story here. (laughs) Quail everywhere. We're walking through that field, and I don't see them. I'm smelling, looking, hearing. No quail, no quail, no quail. Suddenly, that dog stops. Point. He said, we're right on top of them. And I said, I don't see any. He said, just walk a few more steps real slow. We walked all of a sudden. Here they come. I was so scared. I was about, you know, startled me, but then bam, 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 bam. Sound like a young war over there in that field for a while. And they were there. The dogs flushed them out. Here's my point. As long as the gospel is preached and Christ is exalted and the churches are flourishing, we flush them out. That's why you don't see them. And as soon as the darkness comes back, they're there. They're present. And demonic influence grows. Today, there's a resurgence of demonic activity because we're not flushing them out with the gospel like we did at one time in this country. Hollywood, entertainment, the exorcist, Rosemary's baby, Carrie, the Lords of Salem. At the recent Grammy, one of the things that got me on this to thinking about it, Katy Perry, a preacher's daughter, sings a song in occultic costuming, Dark Horse. It's occultic. She sings another one, E.T., occultic. Go to Barnes and Nobles, long shelf of occultic material over there that the teenagers hover around sometimes and the adults. But it's there. The drug culture, all of these tell us that darkness, the darkness of our culture. Turn quickly, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy 4 and 1, I hope you'll mark it in your Bible. Where have all the demons gone? 
Well, as long as the country was full of light, the demons were flushed out. But now that the country is imbibing the darkness, encouraging the darkness in so many different ways, we see a fulfillment of a prophecy, 1 Timothy 4 and 1, in the latter days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons, seducing spirits, a mark of the last days. You see the rise of occultic activity, you're seeing a fulfillment of prophecy. Well, lastly, so we're in a great spiritual battle today. We forget that. We don't come to church thinking we're in a battle. We come to church thinking, well, I'll relax and listen to the rev and enjoy the music, meet the people. We're in a battle. The battle is in the mind, 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not to the power of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Blinded minds. The battle is spiritual, not physical, not economic, not even political. I've spent a lot of my life trying to fight for political freedom. Truth is, that's a result of spiritual light. The battle is spiritual, and it's in the mind. I don't believe in exorcist. I don't. I, I believe that's. I don't believe there's such a thing that a human being can cast out a demon spirit. No. I do believe that the gospel of Christ is the great exorcism tool. And that when we preach and proclaim the gospel and when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and we give out the literature, then we are flushing out demonic activity. And I want to say to you that America, more than anything, needs a resurgence of pure biblical gospel preaching. And it needs churches that put that evangelism on the front row, that we don't just come to church so we can learn more over here in Bible study or in the, in the service, but that we understand our mission and our task is to preach the Word, teach the Word, but go out and tell the Word and live the Word and witness and invite because when we do that, we are being the light and the salt pushes back the power of Satan. 2 Timothy in chapter 2, and I conclude. It's a prayer. Paul instructs young Timothy, says, I want you to pray about this, Timothy, young preacher, that they may recover themselves. Who is they? Unsaved people. That they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. Or some translations say that they may come to their senses who are taken captive at his will. Bow your head with me if you will.